Well, hello there, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you are listening to episode 184 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. On today's show, we are discussing what we can add to our lives by subtracting. When humans, when you and I solve problems, we tend to overlook an incredibly powerful solution, which is, of course, subtracting. We pile on the to-dos, but we don't consider the stop-doings. We add something to our home because we think it's going to transform it from this messy lived-in disaster to this beautiful, pristine home from the you know crate and barrel catalogs, let's say. My guest today, however, argues that subtraction should be and can be, if we train ourselves to do things differently, subtraction can be our go-to. There are an awful lot of benefits to subtracting as opposed to adding. My guest today is Dr. Lydie Klotz, and he's the author of the new book titled Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Lydie, I am so excited to have you on. How are you? Terrific. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I'm I'm excited to to be here and talk to you and to your audience, too. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. First, I want to ask you about your son and his Legos. But before we get there, give us your 30-second bio. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia. And technically, I'm an engineering professor, but I study basically how we design. So the behavioral science of design. Um, A lot of my best collaborators are behavioral scientists. And um, that's what led to the book is this kind of fundamental design question of when we encounter a situation, whether it's a, you know, an engineering structure or whether it's, you know, our daily schedule or our cluttered closet, how do we try to improve it? And um, one of the things we found with the research and one of the things that we talk about in the book is that subtraction often doesn't come to mind as easily. Hmm. And I'm definitely going to ask you why that is, why our minds always go to adding something to solve the problem as opposed to taking something away. But before we get there, tell me about your son and his Legos. Yes, my son, uh, he's six now, but he was three at the time, and he is getting a really big head from his story being passed around the world about his Lego. So the genesis of this research, which led to the book and also led to the, there's a nature paper that we did that made it to the, on the cover of nature actually. So this is, you know, for academics, that's like the pinnacle of my career, but the, the genesis of the research was me playing Legos with Ezra and we were trying to make a bridge. And the basic problem we had was one of the columns of the bridge was longer than the other. So the bridge wasn't level. And I turned around me behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column. And by the time I had turned back around, Ezra had removed a block from the longer column. Um, And so it was just a really powerful example of this thing that I'd been thinking about, but hadn't been able to kind of put into words or even put into like a Lego model. And I'm a, you know, I like to think I'm somewhat of a minimalist in terms of, you know, the possessions and the activities that I accumulate in my life. And so I'd always been interested in this idea, but, you know, the bridge example, Ezra created this, or Ezra showed me basically that one of the things that's common to all of these situations is you're, you're presented with something and you're trying to make it better and you have a couple of fundamental choices. One is to think, okay, what can I add? 
And the other is to think about, okay, what can I take away? And we've since done tens of thousands of hours of research on this. And it turns out people do very, people tend to do what I did, which is just to think, okay, what can I add to the situation? And then you move on, which adding is not bad, but it does show that, you know, if we add and move on and don't even think about the other way to make change, then we're not going to get to a lot of really nice destinations. Well, one of the aspects to your book that I really appreciated was that you mentioned these big names who use their platform to advocate for for less, for subtraction. Marie Kondo is one you talk about at length, and we're going to get to her. But you also mentioned Cal Newport of Digital Minimalism and Jamie Oliver, who I believe advocates for cooking with, is it five ingredients or less? Yes, he has a five ingredient or less cookbook, I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> so so there are people saying, hey, wait a minute, don't add something to your life. How about you take it away? Yet still, these three people, these three influencers are considered revolutionary, even though I would argue perhaps that their their advice isn't isn't revolutionary. Uh so I guess my question here is why is subtraction considered in 2021, in your opinion, to be novel and new advice. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's some of the best evidence of the fact that we've been overlooking it for so long or that our minds will left to our own devices will overlook it. And then even sometimes when we do think of subtraction, we, we choose not to do it. And so, I mean, you mentioned Marie Kondo, Cal Newport and Jamie Oliver. And I, I mean, I think their advice is great and I've benefited from, I haven't read Jamie Oliver's cookbook, but I, I get the idea and I, but I have benefited from Kondo and, and Newport and they're not new. I mean, there's uh, Da Vinci's definition of design perfection, right? Is when there's nothing left to take away. Um, and then even a quote that gets attributed to Lao Tzu from two and a half millennia ago, you know, to gain knowledge, add things every day, to gain wisdom, subtract things every day. So there've always been these people who seem counterintuitive um, by reminding us of one of these very basic ways that we can make change. And I think that's some of the best evidence that, you know, this isn't easy. This is hard. We need reminders. We need um, uh, we need to to cue ourselves. We need to have you know um, motivation to to follow through with our subtractions. And I think the the gurus are are really good evidence of that. Hmm. You mentioned also that there are a bunch of different reasons why we as humans tend to add as our default instead of subtract. And you mentioned some cultural, economic, biological reasons to support this. Can you just name name a few? Give us a couple reasons why we add? Yeah. I mean, so what we found in the research that was new is that we don't even think of subtracting. So adding is the first instinct when we're encountered, when we are presented with a situation. But then even after we think of it, there's this, you know, innate desire we have to display competence. Um, You think about a bowerbird building nests to attract a mate. Um, And as humans, we have this same innate desire to, to show people that we can be effective in our world. And, you know, when it comes to being a minimalist, that's, it can be harder to do that, right? I mean, it's harder for somebody to notice the fact that you've got a, a, a sparse living room than it is if you've got all this ornate decoration in there. Um, and then, so there's the competence. And then the other big one that I think um, has been brought up on some of your other shows, Stephanie, is just this, you know, the economic forces, right? Um, if you think about um, growth as this, you know, 
driving goal for our economies uh, and, you know, everything from measuring GDP to measuring your um, kind of stock market returns and, and using these as indicators of, of happiness, um, that is also going to pull us towards more, right? And also work against minimalism and, and things that might make us happier through less. Mm. Well, I must say that I have been talking a lot about you and your book in my house <laughs> this past weekend. <laughs> I thank you so much for sending your book over so I could read it in advance of our chat. Uh, but you know, I mentioned to my husband, who's an architect, that I was talking to you about this subject. And, you know, he hasn't read your book, but he said, oh, that makes so much sense as an architect. He's always adding design elements to his work to make something flow better or look more appealing, right? But there's so much to be said for subtracting design elements. And as a writer, I'm a I guess my my in my first life I was an English major in college. When we write, we get flowery and go on for paragraphs. Yet, <laughs> what is the mark of great writing? It's short and succinct. It's using the right word at the right time, not just using a lot of words willy-nilly. And then with my children, I'm thinking about them. They were pretty bored this weekend and I'm thinking, "Oh, even as a minimalist, my immediate thought was they're bored. They need this X new thing to, I don't know, cure their boredom. Like, I guess my point here is that addition is always on my mind, even as a minimalist. How can my listeners apply subtraction as a means of improving their days and their quality of life? Yeah, I mean, I think you just put it so beautifully, Stephanie. And I mean, almost, yeah, uh, I love how you extend like the same basic thought process across very different mediums right and so like writing is a an idea and architecture is this physical thing and then your kids who knows what they were dealing with but the thing that can be really helpful is just appreciating that it's not easy um and i think there's this tendency with you know minimalism or with any of these kind of less is more things is people are like oh yeah that's easy that's that's intuitive if we just kind of like sit back it'll it'll happen but in fact you know the what we found in the research is actually a really nice metaphor for how it works in the real world is like it takes more i mean it was we didn't find that people can't think of subtracting it was just that it, it's not their first thought um if they put a little more effort into it they can think of it and i think that's the same you know in some of the physical world right i mean your husband with his architecture this is an area that i know something about where it's you know it's easy to do the building the same way you did the last one right and then um, and then that often satisfies the client, right? And then to to subtract or, or to get to less, it requires doing more, you know? So you've got this design that works and satisfies everybody. And you can say, oh, well, what if we take out these elements and it's going to create this really cool new aesthetic that no one else would be able to show. And it's the same with, you know, cleaning out your closet. First, you have to clutter it. Um, so I think two things to sum up. I mean, one is the, this notion, just respecting that this is a hard thing to do and, and being prepared to put in the effort. And I, I mean, it can be really fun effort, I think, but it's requires mental effort and it requires physical effort, oftentimes more than adding does. And then once you've done that, just, uh, being willing to continue persisting, right? And one of the things I talk about in the book is persisting to noticeable less, which I think, well, I, we can get to, but um, 
Well, maybe I'll talk about it now since since I'm on it. So so persisting to noticeable less is like I talked about this barrier with showing competence, right? It's hard when you subtract something to show competence, but there are, you know, thinking about architecture, um, some of the most notable architecture is really minimalist. And, and if you, I think, you know, you can display competence if you do enough subtracting. Eventually, if you keep subtracting and subtracting and subtracting, it becomes really obvious that like, holy cow, this thing is different because there's less there. Um, and the same with words, right? Hem- Hemingway's theory of omission, when he's, he did his really stripped down short stories, people have said, wow, this is this is revolutionizing writing. And um, so he had subtracted so much that his, his less was was noticeable. And I think, you know, as minimalists, you can do that too, right? I mean, some people are might be minimalists and you wouldn't be able to see it from the outside. And other people, it's like, wow, there's something different about the, the way this person lives their life. And that that's really showing their competence. I want to talk to you all about your idea of a stop doing list. I think I said that right, a stop doing list. I'm going to ask you all about it after a quick word from this week's sponsor. The Sustainable Minimalist Podcast is supported by Real Paper. The average American family uses three rolls of toilet paper per week, but there are big problems with conventional paper. Before it was toilet paper, it was a tree, and standing trees are cut down for our wiping needs every single day. Enter Real Paper, which offers a 100% bamboo solution. I appreciate that real paper is strong yet soft, and I also love that an entire month's supply arrives at my doorstep in completely plastic-free packaging. And as an intentional consumer, I feel good knowing that every roll of real paper purchased helps fund access to clean toilets for those in need. Ordering is as easy as heading to realpaper.com choosing how often you want your tree-free toilet paper delivered, and entering code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 25% off your first order. That's R-E-E-L-Paper.com, and be sure to use code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 25% off. And we're back with Dr. Lydie Klotz, author of a new book titled Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Lydie, I really want to talk to you about your idea of the stop doing list because it just spoke to my heart. So tell us, what on earth is a stop doing list and why do we all need one? Yeah, it's uh, what it sounds like. So you instead of a, a to-do list or to complement your to-do list, you just identify all the things you're going to stop doing. And the key here is it has to be a stop doing, not just a don't add. So my friend Ben, who is a partner on the on the research, about two years into the research we're doing on why people overlook subtraction, he came to me and he said, hey, I'm taking some of the research to heart. And he had installed this bell. It was called a, he's calling it his no bell. So whenever he said no to a new task, he would ring the bell. And I said, that's great, Ben, you're not overloading your schedule, but you're not, you know, when you say no to when somebody asks you to be on a committee or something, you're not actually subtracting, you're just not adding. (laughs) So um, the stop doing is saying, okay, here are the things that I'm currently doing, whether it's in your day or, you know, I do it on kind of a week basis. And I think through the activities that I'm doing and here are the ones that I'm just not going to do anymore. And trying to figure out what, what are these things that you're already doing 
that you can stop doing. And that list, it's it's hard. Um, it's hard to to come up with things that you want you want to get rid of. Um, but it, it's incredibly valuable. And keeping those stop doing lists has helped me um, subtract things from my life that, of course, allow you to you know you can do other things with that time. Hmm. You bring up a really good point there, which is that subtracting, the act of subtraction is an action. It's a verb. It's different from simply just not doing something. And I am one of those annoying people that <laughs> starts every day with a to-do list, a, a start doing list, right? Uh, and then I cross the things off as I get them done. But it sounds to me like a stop doing list is very active, just like a to-do list is. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the, the paradox here, right? Is like, you need these type A minimalists basically to, to think of how can we, how can we subtract things from our list? How can we stop doing, how can we, you know, continue to take away from the perfect piece of writing, even after it's, you know, good enough for everybody else. Hmm. I'd love to shift our conversation a little bit and talk about something you dedicate an entire chapter to in your book, which is how subtraction can be part of the solution to all the environmental problems we're facing in 2021. So talk to me about that. How can we subtract as a means of improving our planet's health? Mm -hmm. And that's why I was so excited to come on your podcast, Stephanie. And this is what brought me to the research. And I think it's probably intuitive to the people who consider themselves sustainable minimalists, right? It's like that <laughs> the this infinite growth on a finite planet is impossible to sustain. But, you know, oftentimes the solution to that is like, oh, we need to go back to how we did things in the 1950s or we just need to kick back and chill out and not, you know, not exploit the the earth as much. And I again, we shouldn't exploit the earth. But, you know, tying back into your point that subtraction is an action, right? And that this is a, an active thing that we can do. So, hey, if we, you know, get rid of some of our stuff and, you know, ostensibly donate it to other people who can then use it so it doesn't go into a, a landfill, if we can streamline some of our time, these things that are just as those can help with your kind of individual environmental footprint or carbon footprint, um, they can help on a societal level too. And so if we, you know, thinking about climate change, I know we're now the fundamental problem here, right? Is that there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. There's more than scientists think is, is safe. And why is it taking us so long to think about, oh, well, maybe we should consider removing some of this CO2 from the atmosphere. And, and we are starting to think about that with some of these, you know, approaches to climate engineering um, and, even just with with crops or with carbon capture and storage, but it's been a long time where you know the entire focus of kind of mitigating climate change has been on okay, how do we slow our adding? How do we slow down the rate at which we're putting CO two in the atmosphere? And again, we need to do both. This isn't an either or proposition. We need to add and subtract to solve these massive societal challenges, just like any other problem. But we certainly can't overlook subtraction when the problem is that there's too much CO2 um, in the atmosphere. Yeah, we've been adding way too much. <laughs> the logical solution would be conscious subtraction, I would argue, especially to the CO2 problem, especially also when we talk about the plastic problem. Now, that brings me to my next question, which is your less list. What is on your less list? 
And what takeaways can myself and my listeners gain from it? Yeah, the I think the biggest um, well, so the less list is kind of a distillation at the end of the book of of what we've talked about in the book, and um, it it may or may not make sense until until you've read the book, but the, it does hint at some of the um, some of the ways that we can use subtraction in our daily lives, and one is to kind of subtract before we try to improve something. So if we go all the way back to Ezra's Lego bridge, for example, or, you know, the, that's actually a bad example. Let's go to the carbon dioxide problem and the climate change. It's a really complex system, right? And if we're trying to hold every part of that complex system in our brain while we're solving the problem, we're not going to get to the most critical parts of it, right? Because we'll be distracted by, um, by the details. And so before you try to improve something, before we try to improve something, we need to kind of strip down that thing we're trying to improve to its essence. So that's the first step. Um, the The second step is to subtract first. Uh, so the you know if we can remind ourselves to subtract first or to put in place uh, just processes that force ourselves to think about subtracting first. So that's the what the stop doing list is so good at, right? If you, Stephanie, if you had that every morning, your stop doing list, you would you would think about um, subtracting first. And the way our brains work is that, you know, if we think about subtracting first, we're more likely to think about it for subsequent um, subsequent ch- chances to improve. So it's really, uh, really critical to do that. Um, then uh, we talked a little about this before, but, you know, this idea of like persisting, keep going, right? So sometimes our one-off subtractions you know, you just, you know, I'm looking at a balloon that somehow got strewn into this room here. If I just remove that balloon, Monica, my wife is not going to notice that I cleaned up this room. <laughs> but if I actually cleaned up the whole room, she would notice and I would be able to to show my competence from that subtracting. And you could scale that up to the plastics in the ocean, right? It's like, keep, keep going, keep going until it's, until it's noticeable that the subtraction has made this, this beautiful thing. And then the last thing to remember, I mean, we've talked a lot about these kind of systematic disadvantages with subtracting, but you can, is, so we have to remember to reuse our subtractions, right? So one advantage that we have, so with this one, I can go back to Ezra's Lego bridge because when he took the block away, he was left with the level bridge plus an extra block. When I added the block, we just had a level bridge, um, and that that block, you know, represents things that you can um, represents a resource that you can then do something with. Um, so if you're getting rid of the your household items, you are all of a sudden can take those items and donate them to people who have less than you do. Or even with um, you know scaling all the way out to the climate challenge, if one of the ways we can subtract to help with climate change is to divest, right? So like take our portfolios and just stop investing in, in fossil fuel companies. Um, so, but then the nice thing about divesting from fossil fuel companies is you've got all this money that you can then invest somewhere else. So because you've subtracted, you've got this, this leftover thing that you can then use. So we need to, we need to remember that. So that's the less list. Uh, and well, I, I want to keep going with two kind of, things that can be specifically helpful. Actually, let me just say one is this tendency to think, add or subtract can really be a, uh, a barrier, right? So we, we often position these two things in as opposites. And when we position things as opposites, we think, well, if I add, that means I can't subtract. 
And it's not, that's not the case at all. They're really two, two different ways to make change, uh, two complementary ways to make change. And the reason that that mindset shift will be helpful is because then if you can think of them as complementary ways to make change, then when you automatically add, which we found our brains do, subtracting might come to mind too. Whereas now, if you're thinking about as this is a either or proposition, when your brain automatically goes to add first, it's going to kind of make you even less likely to think about subtracting because you're thinking that, well, if, if adding is an option, if I add, then I can't subtract, um, which isn't true, but it's, uh, but it, it can, it can be damaging in your overall thought process. Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. And I find myself wanting to ask you, you know, you mentioned very, very eloquently that humans tend to add before subtract, but we can train ourselves to perhaps subtract first. Do you, in your own life, after studying this, after writing this book, do you now go to subtraction as your default problem-solving response? Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's an example in the book that your husband would enjoy, and, and you probably too. But I mean, we moved, when we moved to Virginia, we downsized and we have a, got a 1,500-square-foot house uh, from like 2,700 square feet, and we upsized the kids. So we went from one to two kids. And, but we, we wanted to have a smaller house, and so we ran this design competition with um, some of my architecture and engineering students. And the, the name of the competition was addition by subtraction. Um, and so the challenge was, hey, make our house better, more livable without adding any square footage. And I mean, long story short, we ended up with a thousand square feet extra on the back of our house. And so I think, you know, this wasn't obviously a case of me not thinking of it. I had made subtracting the default and they were just, you know, we couldn't overcome the, the sheer the practical forces and also the economic forces, like we just weren't in a position to invest a whole bunch in renovating our house and not add any square footage. So by no means am I perfect. Um, that's, that's that story. But the, I do think that um, I, I think of it more and that it's, it's been helpful, especially probably in the most related way is with my time. Uh, and, you know, especially with two kids and during the, the pandemic and, you know, I think everybody is just stretched for time, no matter what their, their life situation and, uh, really thinking about, you know, this time is this resource and this really precious commodity and the stop doings and the things that I can take away. So I do think that that is one place where it has become this kind of default part of my thinking. Um, in, you know, from doing the research, from writing the book. And I, and so I think that is the, the level that we can reasonably expect to get to is that, you know, this isn't like, it's an uncurable thing. We can, we can definitely get better at, at seeing more of our, more of our options for making the world better. Hmm. Let's talk about your book for a minute. It came out last month, I believe. And one more time, I'll tell everybody what it's called. It's called subtract the untapped science of less I have two questions for you, and I'm going to give them to you both at the same time. The first question is, what do you hope your readers gain from your book and your research? And the second question is, where can my listeners find it? Okay, I'll answer the first one. I mean, you can find it anywhere you want. And so um, anywhere books are sold, uh, I independent bookstores, Amazon, Target, <laughs> Walmart, um, and it's in pretty much every country too. Um, so so that's where you can find it. Then um, I really hope uh, that readers 
gain this new lens for looking at the world. Um, again, I think that the the condos and the Newports and the you know Tim Ferrises and Jamie Oliver's are telling us to subtract in specific ways. And uh, you know what I hope the book gives you by understanding the why, because there is there's a lot of science in the book, and there a lot of um, I mean, there's, there are stories too, and I've done my best to make it entertaining, but it really, I hope helps readers understand why this happens so that they can then see how to subtract in all these areas of their life that I never would have even thought of, or that no guru would have thought of for them. So that's what I, I hope the book can do. Well, I must say it was an excellent read. I will link to it in this week's show notes for listeners who want to learn a little bit more about how they can actively subtract in their own lives. But Lydie, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and offering up your wisdom. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Stephanie. Me too. And I really appreciate the the work you're doing. I mean, I think that the the movement that you're part of is is very important for our for our planet and for our individual happiness. Listeners, I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Lydie Klotz. I have linked to his new book in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 184. Now, I'm super excited today because Jess called, left the show a voicemail, and asked her most pressing question as it relates to sustainable minimalism. Here she is. Jess, take it away. Hi, my name is Jess. I'm a big fan of your show. Um, my question is regarding sustainable traveling. Uh, as a college student looking to explore and see the world, how would you recommend that someone does that sustainably and without leaving a trail of waste behind them? Thank you. Have a great day. Well, Jess, thank you so much for listening to the show, and thank you for being the first person to call the show's voicemail and ask a question. I love hearing your question in your voice. Now, sustainable travel is a question I get often, and before I answer it, I should stay right off the bat that I am not perfect at all in this regard. I love to travel. Before children, I traveled the world. And I still use airplanes, right? In 2021, it's darn near impossible not to. I will say, however, I believe I have to say, because if I don't say it, my answer is not comprehensive, that the only way to be truly sustainable in our travel is to avoid airplanes. Now, that said, if you, like me, love to travel and want to see the world, there are some decisions you can make when it comes to airplanes that will lower your footprint. The first is to fly coach. Business class has the bigger seats and the more legroom. And so if you fly business class, you will emit three times more emissions than if you fly coach. Another option here when you're flying is to, whenever possible, fly direct. Because when you fly direct, you're eliminating those gas-guzzling takeoffs and landings that a trip with multiple layovers would have. Now, when you're booking your lodging, instead of staying in a gigantic big hotel, try staying in an Airbnb and specifically a place that is close to your destination so that you can walk or that so that you can take public transportation that seats 40 people or more. That's the general rule of thumb. If there's a public transit option that you can take that seats at least 40 people, that's considered more eco-friendly than, let's say, taking a taxi cab. Now, when you choose your lodging, 
Choose somewhere with a kitchen because when you have a kitchen, you are empowered to make your own meals, not waste as much food as you would, let's say, at that gigantic buffet in the hotel room. When you're in your destination, really anchor your efforts by the singular goal of leaving your destination, leaving the place you're visiting better than you found it. It's important to note that not all countries, and particularly developing countries, do not have comprehensive systems for managing their waste in place. And some developing countries, I should say, don't even have systems at all for waste. And so as travelers, it's really prudent that we commit to creating as little waste as possible when we're on vacation. So instead of getting that paper map, download the city map onto your phone. Skip the single-use plastics if you're going out for lunch. Don't take that straw and fork and plastic spoon. Bring your own. Or go to a restaurant that uses reusables. Now, one other thing here when we're talking about restaurants, go off the beaten track and let your money really help those in the community. So seek out the hidden gems as a means of being judicious with your giving while you're on vacation. I should say that this is not a comprehensive answer, and if you want more tips, Jess, you should, shameless plug here, definitely check out my book, Sustainable Minimalism. I have an entire chapter in the book dedicated to being sustainable on the go. So Jess, thank you so much for your question. Listeners, you can help keep this series going. If you have a question, just call the podcast voicemail. Don't worry, nobody will pick up. It'll send you straight to a voicemail. Ask your question, and you will hear your voice and my answer on air. It's super simple. I have outlined how exactly to do it in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 184. On next week's show, we are discussing COVID-19's lasting impacts on the planet. I will see you then. Have an amazing week and take care.